This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a rehab that treats alcoholics and addicts with compassion rather than control, which is a great mission if you think about it. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating alcoholism and co-occurring mental health disorders, including drug addiction and severe mental illness, or SMI as we like to say on the show. They have amenities you wouldn't believe, sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, and the potentially transformative spiritual sweat lodge. They also make sure that your detox is as comfortable as you could hope it could be. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Sober Buddy app. I want to talk to you guys about them. Sober Buddy, it's super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy that you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free service called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivations based on how you respond to it. The app also has a sober tracker that's down to the second and daily check-ins from Buddy where he asks you how you're feeling and if you're sober and then gives you advice based upon your mood. Right now, Sober Buddy has over 30,000 people using their services to get sober and I know we've had a bunch of folks in the Dopey Nation who use it and really love it. If you're interested, check them out on YourSoberBuddy.com and you can see all of their services there. It's nice to have these free and super inexpensive resources out there for everyone now. It's been a long time coming. Again, that's YourSoberBuddy.com if you're interested. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at SoberLink who know that somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, Relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol, because it is so widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings, which is why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. 
As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for 50 bucks off your device. Do it for that someone who cares and let Soberlink help you to stay off the sauce. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting, a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off of your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. And don't forget the dash in www.evolution-accounting.com. Let them help you with your full-service accounting needs. This episode of Dopey is most importantly brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the wonderful, wonderful thing of Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash Dopey Podcast, and basically that's just a way to help Dopey be as dopey as possible. If you've been paying attention to Patreon, it's off the fucking hook lately. Last week, the great Ray Brown returns to the show via the Patreon, or as I like to call it, the Raytreon. There's also videos, music, a weird panel discussion that Linda's in. There's so much shit in there. It's totally worth spending a few bucks and helping keep Dopey super dopey or as dopey as possible. Also, I got the fucking trucker hats, by the way. I have, I have a variation of trucker hats, but we'll get into that later. We have tons of gear available through our partners at SRO Prints, a bunch of junkies straight out of Cincinnati, Ohio. You go to dopeypodcast.com, you'll see a ton of shirts, tank tops, hoodies. There are still, I believe, a bunch of shirts on sale for 20% off. Good So Bad is on sale. Fucking, I think Toodles for Chris is on sale. The Dopey Heads are on sale. And once they're gone, they won't be back for a while. So go to dopeypodcast.com and check out the gear. Again, I have truckers hats. I have the old school Dopey snapbacks. And I have Oyve hats and stickers. Venmo me for that shit. If, uh, if you feel like you're missing something, write me an email. Be very detailed. Thank you very much. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and uh, I don't know if you can tell... But I'm recording on the new fucking gear. So hold on. Check this out. Can you tell I'm recording on the new gear? I'd like to thank everyone in the Dopey Nation for kicking down money to get this new incredible setup. 
I'd like to thank fucking Scott Wick and Karina Fleming and I don't know who else kicked in, but I'm sure there's a I'm sure somebody could send me a list and we can read all the names and we can thank everybody one at a time. But the new gear is pretty is pretty sweet. Uh, and if it actually sounds sweeter, write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Listen to the Patreon episode. Ray is on it. And uh, and you can hear the inaugural uh, Roadcaster episode. Uh, this is a big week on Dopey. There's a ton of shit happening. Um, the first thing is not a happy thing. It is uh, three years this week that Todd died. And I just need to acknowledge it. You know, uh, there isn't a day that goes by where I don't think about Todd. And uh, it's funny, me and Todd years ago played we, when we lived in, in Los Angeles. Me, Todd, and Jeremy lived in a house in Los Angeles. And in the garage, Todd had set up his drum kit and I had set up an amp and we started practicing and we always played ridiculously high. And I always thought we could be like the White Stripes, just like a guitarist and a drummer. The only problem was we both kind of sucked. And we would just play in there. And the name that I gave us incredibly cleverly was The Addicts. Although it wasn't Addict, it was like The Attic, like upstairs in the house. So Todd, you know, after a series of, of misadventures and missteps, Todd went back to upstate New York where he formed a band with his friends. And they were like, we need a name. And Todd's like, I have an idea. Let's call it The Addicts. But he never mentioned that I came up with the name or that we had a band called The Addicts that he's just like stealing the name. So he gave the band name The Addicts to his group upstate. And recently um, I got a Facebook invitation to like the band The Addicts. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. They took the name and uh, and they said they didn't know that it was my name. But that's Todd you know, that's that's the Todd shot from Beyond the Grave. The Addicts Live On in upstate New York. Check them out if you'd like. And just real quick, uh, we miss you, Todd. If, if you're listening to Dopey in Heaven with Chris, just know that we love you and we miss you. And the Roadcaster, I've programmed in Funky Drummer. So here's a little Funky Drummer for Todd, real quick. And I don't think Todd could ever play the funky drummer, but uh, I know he would have appreciated the Rhodes caster funky drummer preset in his honor. And I think the funky drummer break might be the greatest break in the history of drum breaks. So, Todd, there you go. In your honor, my old friend, we miss you down here if you're up there. We miss you wherever you are. And then there's a lot of really exciting other stuff in the, in the world of dopey or in the doposphere, as we sometimes like to say. Uh, first thing that's happening is that Chris's sister set up a documentary about Chris. And the filmmaker literally just texted me just now that he's done. So he's going to send it to Chris's sister this week. So there might be a Chris documentary coming out over the summer and I think, uh, I don't know where it's going to be available. I don't know if it's just going to be for the family, but I'm definitely going to ask Arden to let the Dopey Nation get a, a viewing of it as well. So look for that, possibly. They might want to make it a real documentary, but I don't know what they're going to do with that. But it's exciting. You know, it's something to honor Chris, which we love. 
Also, really crazy in the world of Dopey. Some of you guys are aware of this. People who attend the Dopey Patreon Zoom, I've talked about this, which is there's this thing coming in in September, on September 8th. It's going to take place in Utah, in Park City. It's called the Park City Song Summit. And it's like a really big deal. It's like a retreat. It's almost like a festival, but they say not to use the F word for festival. And there's going to be a ton of... uh, of big time acts, like some really top secret big time acts. And it's not just a concert. It's this whole crazy interactive experience with speakers and these things called labs. I'm, I'm going to be at this thing. I'm going to be doing a lab, but some of the performers that are going to be there, Andrew bird, fucking, uh, Elvin Bishop, Charlie Musselwhite, father, John Misty, Iron and Wine, Fred Armisen is doing some comedy thing, fucking John Doe is going to do a thing, um, Mavis Staples, like a ton, Langhorn Slim, Leslie Jordan, fucking uh, Ivan Neville, Dopey alum, Ivan Neville, Dopey alum, fucking Mike Dillon, Snowboarder, Sean White, Dopey alum, Rich Roll, The Preservation Hall Jazz Band, and many, many, many others, including a big-time headliner. I don't know who I'm going to get to interview, but it's going to be fucking interesting because uh, we're going to go there and we're going to do it up dopey style. So if any of you guys are near Utah on September 8th, you should totally go. That would be the greatest thing. That's like the the uh, undercover DopeyCon 3 is at the Park City Song Summit, but it won't really be DopeyCon 3, but it seems like it's pretty plush. It seems like it's going to be really worth checking out. And that's you could check it out online, obviously. Just Google Park City Song Summit. And other things that are happening that are exciting is, I don't know if you guys know this, but like we've been making some YouTube videos. I did a a weird YouTube video that illustrates, that shows the path I took when I tried to, when I actually successfully snuck into Madison Square Garden back in the late 90s for the Knicks Bulls finals, uh, Eastern Conference finals. So that's a pretty funny video. We recorded... um, Last week's show on video with uh, the incredible Skinny Vinny, and that's on YouTube as a video. And that's really why I busted out the roadcaster, because as many of you pointed out to me, the audio was totally fucked up. So Skinny Vinny's on YouTube. There's a bunch of YouTube videos on there. Um, I'm excited. Dopey is in a, a very robust state of dopiness. One thing we could use more of is funny dopey stories. So please send in a voicemail, record it. And if you want to know how to record a fucking voicemail, you take your phone. I think Androids have a voice memo feature. I know that iPhones do. You hold it in your hand, you hit record, you tell a funny, stupid, crazy, scary drug story, you hit stop, you hit share, and you email it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and then we'll play it on the show. And if anyone is missing anything or like merch or anything, write me an email because I'm very disorganized. If anyone has sent in material that you want to see on Dopey, remind me because I might have missed it or forgot about it. That would be very, very helpful. And I really suffer a lot of anxiety from having such terrible organizational issues. So much so that I'm totally considering going to a professional And one place that has incredible professionals is BetterHelp.com. 
BetterHelp is a super convenient way to get professional help from licensed therapists and counselors online. God fucking damn it. I think I need fucking therapy to deal with the fucking phones here. And at BetterHelp.com, I can get the therapy to deal with rage issues, insecurity, fear. Again, there's over 10,000 counselors with many different areas of expertise, all of whom are licensed, trained, accredited, and highly experienced. You match with an available counselor who is the best fit for your personal needs. You get unlimited private one-on-one communication with your therapist. You schedule live sessions with your counselor, or you use the secure messenger. Everything, obviously, is uh, totally confidential. It's scary to live in this world. Talking to people about your problems makes your problems feel better. I have great experience in that, and, uh, and I'm so glad that BetterHelp can help people to feel better. If you want to try BetterHelp.com, Go to betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. That's betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health and feel a little bit better. It's available in all 50 states. Check it out. Betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. So we have a really exciting guest this week. She's a legend. We have a music legend. She is going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year in a very, very exciting class of inductees. I was trying to get her on the show for about a year. I didn't give up. Why would I? It's Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's. She's the bass player. I've always loved the Go-Go's. I love their songwriting. I love their playing. I love their energy. Uh, It might be demasculating for me to admit to being such a Go-Go's fan, But I also grew up, you know, I was born in 1974. I think when the Go-Go's were hitting their stride, I was in a moment in my life where MTV was hitting its stride and running my life. And um, they affected me. The thing that affected me the most about the Go-Go's was the catchiness of their songs and the joyfulness of their spirit. So, like, when I found out that I had a chance to have Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's on Dopey to infuse Dopey with some of the Go-Go's spirit. I just couldn't resist. So here we go. Very excited. Kathy Valentine. Listen, I have a lot of people on this show. Um, However, I'm not really a fan of a lot of people on this show. Or I won't say that. I'll say I'm a super fan of the person who is on this show now. Her music has affected my life incredibly strongly. I'm a huge fan of yours. I loved her book. Her name is Kathy Valentine. She was in the incredibly important band, The Go-Go's. Welcome to Dopey. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And I I still live in The Go-Go's. We're actually still plugging along here and there. So, Totally. And, And just so you understand the depth of my fandom, not only did I read your brilliant memoir, All I Ever Wanted, I saw the Showtime documentary, I watched Behind the Music again, and I listened to you on Mark Marin. So I'm I'm in there with you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um does it does it matter that you're frozen on the Zoom? No, we can ignore that. But hopefully okay. it'll hopefully it'll unfreeze. Okay. Do you think it'll unfreeze? I hope it unfreezes. I don't know. To me I see me, but oh yeah, it's unfrozen. Okay. So yeah, well, those are all pretty valid um little documents of um of time for sure of your existence um and 
you know, like, just to make it clear, you wrote Vacation, Head Over Heels, Can't Stop the World. Like, these are songs that ran my life. Uh, I grew up listening to these songs, and I still love them, and I love your music. So thank you for that stuff. Awesome. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Right on. And, uh, and you grew up in Texas, and in the 70s, when it was, like, very, 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 like, archetypical or classic to be a stoner and to be a substance user. So why don't you uh, tell us how it started? Well, I think um, I think that I wrote in my book that I think the neural pathways to addiction started with me even before I found uh, stuff to take or drink or ingest because I was very addicted to just checking out like in a fantasy way. And I would just kind of just go off into these places and I would actually look forward to like, you know, a drive in a car with the grownups where they, you know, weren't talking to me or something where I could just check out or sitting on an airplane. Like anytime I had an opportunity to just kind of go somewhere else, I took it. So I didn't realize that when you write a book, so many things kind of come out that you go, Oh, wow. So I, I, when I was writing that, I thought, I think that's when, cause I think addiction is a lot about neural pathways. I think that, um, you think something a lot, you do something a lot, you get some, something serves you a lot. And these little pathways just start, that's becomes the norm. And that's what, what we kind of, you know, we follow it, that we're getting these signals from our brain, like this is normal, this is normal. So um, by the time I turned, um, I guess I was 12 years old, I think, uh, there was a summer between uh, six, wait, I get mixed up because I have a daughter that is different now. So junior high back then was six, seven, and eight. Yes, 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 yes. Six, oh, wait. I think it, it was seven, eight. eight. I think junior high was just seventh and eighth. Yes, it was junior high was seventh and eighth. So between elementary school and junior high, like the, the shit hit the fan. I mean, I started having sex. I started smoking cigarettes. I started drinking. Um, and it was like I entered, I entered junior high school. Like the, the path was set. It was like I, I had been a straight A student until then, but I'd been very you know, very much a misfit, didn't ever feel like I fit in and very sad inside because of not having a dad, not feeling like I mattered to my dad. And, you know, of course, none of this is conscious at that point. You know, all I knew is that when I drank that I didn't feel uncomfortable and I was never, and same when I got high, you know, and it was just, I found a group you know, as soon as I got, because I didn't fit in, everybody um, had kind of normal families. A lot of people in, in Austin, in Texas, in the suburb where we moved to, they, they had like a station wagon and sisters and brothers and a certain kind of house. I had a, a really cool hipster mom and um, who was very much kind of into her thing and her world and kind of left me to just take care of myself. And and, ju- and just so the dopey nation, the audience knows, Kathy's mom was English. She was like a bohemian. She believed in full freedom. And like yeah. when you're a kid for a second, that's like the coolest thing in the world. But when you realize that you're sort of like 
sisters with your mother instead of a your mother's daughter. I had my best friend had the exact kind of same thing, and yeah. and her his mom smoked pot, and he he loved the freedom until he didn't. You know what I mean? He wound up at my house all the time looking for structure, um, and and that was kind of your thing that you were, you know, it was sadness, and and I, I love the way you said the thing about checking out. Because that's exactly what we get from substances. We get the ability to not be present. So, yeah. so, and so, when was the first time that you had started drinking? Um, well, the first time I drank, um, it was uh, this vile stuff called Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill. And, you know, me and my friend drank until we were throwing up and then we kept drinking. And, you know, it's like looking back as a rational, sober person, you think like, you know, why would you want to, like, if, if you were eating something that was rotten, you would, and it was making you vomit, you wouldn't keep eating. <laughs> but, uh, but I just, like, I would vomit and then drink some more. And it was a, a gateway that Strawberry, Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill was my gateway. And um, in Texas, the big, you know, the big drugs were uh, pills which I didn't get into black Molly speed downer, like, you know, quaaludes, uh, pot and, and, um, um, white crosses like trucker speed and, um, hallucinogens. Those were the, those were the seventies drugs. So where I went to was drinking, uh, smoking pot and then doing like, psilocybin mushrooms mescaline and acid though those were my things pills for some reason scared me i don't know why the idea of popping pills just kind of it's just so weird when you are a user when you look back at like where you draw your lines you know well again it's I i think it's that same thing the neurochemistry the neural pathway will dictate like what works or what doesn't um what was the first psychedelic experience do you remember it yeah, we used to do, we used to get, um, like, little hits of acid before school, oh and we'd, God. like, use our lunch money to buy it, and it would be on little stick, little pieces of paper, and we'd tear them in half, and, you know, the first time, it was just kind of goofy and silly, and just kind of like, oh, like, dipping the toe in, until, you know, you got the courage to do more, and generally, it wasn't an, an everyday thing. But it was just kind of an experiment thing. And um, eventually, eventually, I found, you know, more uh, upper, upper level drugs, which basically enabled me to drink more. And, you know, in time, I found that like, like Coke would make it so I could drink more. Like, it wasn't like if I just woke up, oh, I got to go score some blow. That was not me. But have a few drinks and I'm having a good time. And, oh, now let's go score some blow. And then we can keep drinking. And then when that runs out, we get more of this. And when that runs out, we get... so th- that was the winning combo for me. But again, it was really all fuel for being a, a, a drinker, you know, right. pretty but much all of it. In the beginning, though, like when you first took acid, had you already picked up a guitar at that point? No. So you no, trip before. Wow, that's interesting. So tell me, so like you were a psychedelic kind of experimenter before you were a guitar player. I, I would have assumed it was the other way for some reason. No, all the, all the kids in, in the that were in the group of the, you know, the degenerate group, everybody was 
was into just doing 70s drugs and stuff. And I didn't become a musician until kind of after leaving that, that situation, that school and that crowd of people. And that was, that was pre hippie school. Yeah. 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 That was, um, that was just a couple of years in junior high were pretty miserable. Um, because as a, as a 12 and 13 year old drunk, you know, I got myself into a lot of bad situations. I, I, I was, um, you know, abused and raped and, uh, you know, just situations that, that might not have happened if I had some parental guidance or wasn't, you know, drinking so much. Totally. And then because it was so painful, uh, I would drink more, you know, because it was, it was painful to all of a sudden be labeled the girl that you could have sex with. Or in my case, there was a lot of lies surrounding. There wasn't even the amount of stuff that was said about me and my mom was so far from the actual truth. And it was so painful to have people talking about me and thinking about me in that way that, you know, the, the drinking became also a way to soothe the, the pain and the, the humiliation and the shame of, uh, things that were being said and sometimes done. Totally. So, so the trauma really, really played a, a large role in the beginning of your addiction and alcoholism then. Yeah, I think, I think at first it just, you know, I just didn't think about the, it just kind of sued the, uh, a place that I didn't even really wasn't conscious of having. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I think I really felt like I didn't matter very much you know, cause I was left to raise myself. You know, my mom always made me feel loved, but I wasn't sure I mattered. And, uh, you know, it, it was not something again, like I would think about, but it's, I know from, from where I am now, from this vantage point, I know that's how I felt. Right. From being a sober parent. Now you can really look back at how you were parented as a kid. Um, well, yeah. One of my favorite things in the book is, is, and it's probably one of my favorite things about you in general is your love of rock and roll and, uh, and like, talk about like when it hit you, like when you realized that you caught that fire. Well, besides having that crowd of people that like to get high and drink and, and stuff and skip school, the, the first time I really remember bonding, like not feeling like a, a, a misfit freak was bonding on music and liking, you know, people liking Bowie and liking the stones or liking T-Rex. And, and so bonding on music was the first time I felt like a connecting except for when you get high with somebody and laugh a lot or, you know, whatever. So it was a very positive thing. Both of them were positive and in that way and that it made me feel connected to people. So, um, I was really into to music, you know, and I'd always been into music. I think everybody is into music. I've never met a person that was not into music, you know, ever. And in the 70s, it was awesome because we had all the cool rock bands that had slid over from the 60s. And, um, you know, there was like all the, the stuff that really appealed to young teenagers, whether it was Alice Cooper or Black Sabbath or, uh, you know, it was just like, it was just everywhere. And it was something I really enjoyed. 
um, being into, although it never really occurred to me to be in a band myself uh, for until I was like 15 or 16. And that's when your mom got with the crazy heroin dealer with the with the homemade guitar and the and the and the stack. Well, it was a it was a um, it was a series of um, uh, events that all conspired in a good way. Like number one, she pulled me out of the public school system, and I went to uh, this hippie school. Uh, it was like a commune in the country, and that was a great thing because. I felt more comfortable. So my, my need to get high and drink kind of reduced. It was still recreational, you know, you know, we, but there was other wholesome things too. And I didn't feel like I was such a misfit because everybody there was kind of count, you know, counterculture kind of, uh, not really buying into the, the normal system. So, and at that school, I started playing guitar and, I still didn't, it still didn't occur to me that I could be in a band. You know, I'm playing guitar and I'm liking all these bands, but I don't put it together mainly because I've never seen it. Visibility is such a key thing for anybody in terms of envisioning what's, what's possible. And I had never seen women in bands, never. I'd seen them as singers, lead singers. I'd seen them as folk singers and with a, holding an acoustic guitar I'd seen them sitting at pianos and, you know, singing songs, but I'd never seen any, like, and I'd seen rock stars, you know, like, like, like women front, like Janis Joplin mainly, but I'd never seen a girl like being like Mick Ronson or Keith Richards or anything like that. I'd never seen it. So I went to England and with my mom and I saw Susie Quattro and it blew my mind. She was the first female rock star I'd ever seen. And I was able to connect the dots and go, I play guitar. I like rock and roll. I can look at her. I want to do that. So I came home and that kind of became something that might've kept me, um, you know, on the, not the straight and narrow, but kept me from going too, too off into the deep end. You know, when you have something that's a creative pursuit, it kind of can click a lot of the same boxes. You know, I could, I, I was getting, um, a lot of the things that, I got from when I was trying to soothe myself or forget things I got from music. So, and it gave me goals. And again, it didn't mean I was not drinking or getting high, but it was just more recreational. Like everybody was doing it. I would not say, I think at that point, if I had wanted to quit, I probably could have. I totally. mean, I think every. I think everybody has a line. I think if, if you're, I mean, I my. I think everybody has, there are theories about what makes you a, an addict or an alcoholic. And my personal belief is that, you know, you, if you have a certain physiology and you cross a line, you're probably on the other side of that line. And I think at that point I still could have reined it in. Maybe, I don't know. It's hard to say, but, um, as soon as, uh, as soon as I got a little older and could get into the bars and the clubs, you know, the drinking went up a little, but I would say my, my interest in, in music and, and having a career and being in a band was, was greater than it was to get fucked up. 
definitely. Well, you probably but, you but, you probably played guitar alcoholically, right? You 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 pursued music like with all of your being, you know, it became your obsession, which is the greatest thing when you have a dream that you can channel your entire will into, you know, for, I had a million dreams and then somehow all of my dreams became, I channeled it all into heroin, you know, and now I channel it into this stupid podcast and parenting and whatever. But like, I think that for you back then, we all, all alcoholics and addicts have this ability to latch onto something and your, your main latch then was playing guitar and pursuing your dream, right? Yeah, and but the the only problem is I had chosen something that is very easy to 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 uh be to continue being an alcoholic and a drug addict with, you know. So, uh once once I was going to the the clubs and stuff, I think there was a, a kind of a period from like maybe 15 to 16 or 17 where I wasn't overdoing it. But once I could get into the bars and drink, you know, I think I would, I think that I was well on my path to, to, you know, being an alcoholic. Totally. And, and also because of the idea of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the, I know how much of a Keith Richards fan you are. And I'm also a crazy Keith Richards fan, but there's a mystique to it. You know, how much of the mystique of the quote-unquote elegantly wasted drew you in? Um, well, it wasn't like I wanted to... I mean, I did I did worship Keith, but it was more not so much about that mystique or the drugs or anything. I, I think if I'd been that into that... I you would have been a heroin addict, been, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would have been doing heroin and stuff. But I think it was more the look, the role in the band. I mean, the Stones were my template for the perfect band. And I saw myself as the Keith, not the drug using Keith, but that role of being a, a primary creator. Find, and I, I was very fixated on finding my Mick, you know, which, you know, I still do that. I, you know, it's too late, but I still would like to find my Mick Jagger. Um, but I, I think it wasn't so much, it was just like, it was just kind of everyone I knew was doing it and everyone I knew it it wasn't like it didn't seem I mean this is still the 70s and there was not there was um I don't know you didn't hear about hepatitis you didn't hear about you know bad drugs you know you didn't it just was a more simpler easier time to get fucked up absolutely and um you know, it's funny because while you were talking, the movie uh, Dazed and Confused kind of popped in my head because that was like Texas, you know, in the 70s, that sort of flavor of rock and roll. Did you ever see that movie? I did. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to watch it again. I think that's a, that, that reminds me of the Kathy Valentine teen years template in my head. Yeah, I want to I want to develop my book for to pitch as a TV series that focuses on those years. And I've been wanting to watch it just more as a, as a research thing, you know, it's so good. It's so good. It's such a fun movie. And I think I could see your whole book being a series. Like, I think that should be the future of, of TV in itself to be able to tell a, a, a long story episodically and, and through seasons. I think that's a really cool idea. I like yeah. that. 
Um, and but and and somebody <coughs> might hear you. Bless you. Somebody Thanks. somebody might hear you say, "When am I going to find my Mick?" And say, "Well, what about Belinda Carlisle? Doesn't count." Well, no. I mean, for somebody who, you know, again, like when you want to make it in the music business, and it's it can be very nebulous. You know, it's like you know, it's like what's first? Well, get out of Austin, go to L.A. or New York. So that's like. So you kind of, there's just these things. And, and then what's the next thing? Well, you know, find a band, you know, you got to have a band and then you got to get good gigs and then you got to see if if people, so like making it, you don't, you don't sit there and go, I'm going to play Madison square garden one day and stuff. It's more like, for me, it was like, I'm very methodical and goal oriented and it's like, okay, what's the next step? So the the Go-Go's to me were a step in that process, that nebulous process. Like when I found that band, I had been in several bands and this band, when I met them and heard the songs, I immediately thought this band could make it. This band could go where I want to, what, what I'm trying to do. This band has the songs. This band has uh, chemistry. This band has that special thing. People respond to it. I'd been in enough bands where I'd played enough gigs where I I could tell when people were going crazy over a band. And that's just a magic thing. Sometimes you can't really plan that. You can't like go, okay, I'm going to pick, you know, Joe and Bob and Sue and we're going to have chemistry and everyone's going to dig it. Totally. It doesn't happen like that. So, so when it happens, you know, that was just, so it wasn't like, Oh, Belinda's my Mick. It was like the go-go's are the band that can, that might be able to be that step and where I want to go. Wow. But again, it's not like you're thinking completely at the end game. It's like, you know, at at a certain point, not having a day job is the idea of success. You know, that's, that's the whole thing or getting a record deal or getting to go in a band. And so the idea of making it can be, can change and shift. Totally. And there's so exactly, there's so many levels to go on tour, to put out a record, whatever. The funny thing is that, um, you know, I, I had been a go-go's fan, you know, in my life. Uh, and when I saw, and even in the behind the music, it doesn't really show what the go-go's were like before you joined them. And in the Showtime documentary, you really see... Because the Go-Go's were pretty scrubby before you joined them. And uh, I used to play in bands. Like, I used to play in ska bands around New York. And uh, I was on, like, shitty punk scene in New York and even shittier ska scene. And, like, I know, like, like the Go-Go's before you joined them was... They were young and they couldn't play. And it was that raucous chaos... Shit, and I remember in the book you were like, I wasn't that impressed the first time I saw them, uh, but you circled back and you saw them again, and and the audience was there, and you were like, I could probably do something with this band, but then they had an opportunity, right? Well, it was also they got a drummer, a good a ah really yeah good drummer, yeah. So Gina Stock changed the band, and when I first saw them, they didn't have Gina, and they were very new. When I saw them again they'd probably played 200 gigs and they'd added a great drummer. So it it was, it was a different band and they, and, and they had, they certainly got my attention then. So, yeah. And, you know, and then in a way 
Belinda was the Mick Jagger because she was a charismatic, great front person. And I never wanted that. I never wanted to be a solo artist. I never wanted to be the front person. You know, I never really wanted, I didn't even care if I got that much attention. And um, I was overlooked a lot all the time for my songwriting contributions. I mean, all the time I would see like, oh, Jane and Charlotte write all the songs. And of course they wrote a lot of great songs and a lot of them before I joined the band. But, you know, I wasn't, I didn't really care that much about, I just wanted to be in a cool band. That's all. I, I mean, you probably say that in the book so many times and I could so relate because uh, I felt the same way. I was never as good a musician as you are though. I, I just never could get it done the way you could get it done. But I, um, I loved that sentiment of being like, I just want to be in a cool band. Their bass player was crazy punk rock bass player, right? And she got sick. And then you were like, someone was like, you want to play the whiskey with us, with you? Yeah, I mean, she, I, I never have met a Margot. I mean, I, I never, I just saw an opportunity and I said, yeah, sure, that sounds good. And, you know, I had four days to learn the bass and learn their songs and I did it. I did, I did a bunch of Coke and stayed up for three days and, and learned it all. And it wasn't, I wasn't partying. I was, it was like probably some college student that like does a bunch of Adderall to just cram for finals. I mean, that was, it was, it was probably the most pure use of drugs that I'd ever had. It was like a tool to, to just keep focused and keep doing it. Um, and in that time, I, I loved the songs, and I it just ended, it just turned out I was a really good fit, a really good fit. It's so it's so fun, and I, I love that that the coke was functional, right? You did the coke to serve a purpose, and the coke didn't do you in at that point, right? The band no, and the, no, and there was times in my using where I would use it in that way. I mean, there was times where I'd be like. I'd get high and I would sit there and like organize all my cassettes, you know, or, or I would just be an organizer. So, you know, I was a very functional uh, drinker and drug user. And I think it kept me going a lot longer. And I think when you're functional, it's kind of, um, it's dangerous, you know, it, you don't come to your knees for a long time. And the other thing I did was I would always, um, gravitate towards boyfriends or love interests that weren't as bad as I was. I think there was some kind of survival, uh, little thing in me that wanted to survive. And I think I, I've, I think I've always had that, like, no matter what is going on, I want to survive. I want to, I want to live and, you know, I remember hanging out with one guy, a musician, and we like, I really liked him. And we like did this like freaking bender for days. And I was just like, whoa, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die if I stay with this guy, you know? <laughs> what was the bender like? Tell, tell us the story. That, that's classic dopey stuff right there. What, what, tell us about the bender with this guy. I think it started out like a, a Godfather bender where we were just like watching all the Godfathers and uh on on vhs and then just you know just doing doing drugs and and like coke and then running out of liquor and then going down to the liquor store and waiting till 6 a.m when it opened and 
you know, getting to that point where it's not fun anymore, but you don't know what else to do. And you, like, you knew you wouldn't survive with this dude. Yeah, no, no I wouldn't. I, uh, yeah, no way. So I, I tended to have this, this, um, you know, I'm a survivor and no matter what happens, I, I do want to live. And, and I think that's one of the reasons I was scared to do heroin. The first, the, the first time I did heroin by accident, I was terrified. And even when I was younger, when I was using, when I was younger, I remember when I was drinking and stuff and I went to my friend's house and I remember her older brother gave us a bean. <laughs> he gave us a bean and I took this bean and he told me it was speed. And I remember how terrified I was. I was like 12 years old. Oh my God. And I don't know what I thought I was taking, but it was a fucking bean. And I, I swallowed the bean and then he said it was speed. And I remember the terror like, oh, my God, I've taken speed, you know. So there was there was like always this this um, parameters I was trying to negotiate where I, I, I wanted to I wanted I mean, I was fun. That's another thing. I was not a, like an isolator, like I'm going to go off and just be all fucked up by myself. I was fun. Life of the party. I wasn't weepy. I wasn't sad. I wasn't obnoxious uh, very much. And, um, you know, I tended to just be like super party gal and, um, it was served me. I mean, and that's ultimately what I think. I think we do what serves us until it doesn't anymore. And hopefully you get to, you have the clarity, you have the clarity to go, this ain't working anymore. Right. And some people then go deeper in to find something that does work. It's so we have these series of crossroads, you know, and, um, you know, the, the ones of us that survive and live, I think eventually we start seeing when we're at those crossroads and we start making conscious choices, better decisions to do the next right thing. I mean, for me, when I became a heroin addict, it was I thought it would serve my anxiety. You know what I mean? I thought it would serve me getting really scared about so many things. It made me not scared. So I thought, and somehow I, I was producing a TV show at the time, and I thought I would be like Miles Davis somehow in my head and survive, when Miles Davis couldn't even survive as Miles Davis. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I had great grandiosity and stupidity. Um, one of my favorite Go-Go's dopey stories that you told was when after the Go-Go's kind of made it big, and you're doing the the press signing, somehow you wound up taking a bunch of acid. Oh yeah. That was my, that's like a go-go myth. I mean, that became like an epic myth. Um, but it was, and there's, I don't think I put a photo in the book. I should have, there's a, a great photo where you, even without knowing the story, you could look at this photo and see that something's very wrong with Kathy. Um, but, um, we played the Palladium. It was our kind of first homecoming show after doing our album. And the album was going to come out the next day or something. And we had a big, with a, you know, the first in-store where you sign albums on Sunset Boulevard at this um, record store. So I went to a very small party after the Palladium. And this guy said, do you want to get do some acid, which I would have never wanted to do if I wasn't drinking, but it seemed like a good idea. 
and I'd done acid. I hadn't done it in a long time, but I was familiar. But I don't think I'd ever done. I think the stuff you buy in junior high school from the kid on the Yamaha is not the same as what the guy in L.A. that runs a head shop has, you know. And uh, so it was it was it was like the last. Let's just put it this way. I never I've never touched a psychedelic. So that was enough for the rest of my life. And it was horrible. <laughs> I was up for, I think maybe 36 hours and, uh, you know, had to go do the, the in-store. They were mad at me. Uh, I was completely freaked out. I couldn't enjoy. This was the first, what I call a pinnacle of success we'd ever had. There was thousands of people lined up outside that store, and all I was was terrified, and not because I was shy. Right. I was terrified because I was out of my fucking tree, you know? Well, the psychedelic effect times thousands of people people equals potential horror show, right? Like, Oh, it was horrible. And plus, my band was mad at me. Nobody was laughing and like, oh, that Kathy... What a card, you know. It was like, what an asshole. You, 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 you're fucking all high on LSD. Wow. Um, and I, I, it was just, it was an. Exp- I mean, it's it. It makes a good story, but but reliving it. And the scary thing was like, once it's all over, and I go to this apartment where I'm crashing, and because um, I gave up my apartment when we went to do our album. And so I came back from doing our album and I was just like crashing at someone's house, someone's apartment. I remember going to sleep and then waking up and I was like peeking. And I really thought I was going to always be like that. I thought this is how I'm going to be. This is my life. And it was terrifying. That's the classic (laughs) fear, right? That is the classic fear. Um, and, and, And through the whole time you're crafting your craft of songwriting, did you feel like on the outside of Charlotte and Jane and in the writing department, because I mean, you, you, um, what's the song I'm thinking of? Uh, the song on, uh, the first record, uh, can't Can't stop Stop the world, uh, was just, I mean, it's, it's like, I think it's in a ton of movies now. And like, I knew that song, but I didn't know how I knew it. Um, and then I, you know, it's, it's such a great pop song. And then vacation is like seminal, like anthem of America, now, how how were you feeling like you were in competition with them? Did you feel like happy to to collaborate with them? Were you on the outside? What did it feel like as a songwriter in a group like that? Well, I I I was I thought their songs that they'd written before I joined were amazing, and those were most of the songs that went on the first album. And uh, I thought they were great songs. But I I was really clear when they asked me to join the band that I was only interested in being in a band where I could be one of the writers and they were really happy about that. I mean, they weren't, they weren't dummies. They knew that, you know, more songs were going to have to come. So, um, no, they were super happy. And I started writing with Charlotte right away. You know, I showed her vacation right away and she said, Oh, let's, let's work on this a little more. I think it's, I think we can make it sound more go-go's with a different, with a, with a, more of a chorus. So I worked on that with her right away. I showed her can't stop the world. And we went in to do the first album and the producer wanted to add one more song and he didn't like any of the songs from the set that he had, that we had, that he had already chosen. 
So he'd never heard Can't Stop the World because the band wasn't doing it. But she said, Kathy's got a great song. So no, I felt like they were absolutely my collaborators. And, you know, from that point on, I was, you know, probably the third major contributor to songs. And I, I wrote easily and happily with, with both Jane and Charlotte and still do to this day. I think that's awesome. I, I love your guys' songs. I I, um, I write songs, too, and I find it very interesting to hear about, like, bands that share all the royalties and they just say all the band wrote the songs versus the bands who split up the royalty. Like, and, uh, like, I think I heard a story where Billy Corgan, someone told Billy Corgan, you can either give the Smashing Pumpkins all the publishing or your band is going to break up and go down in flames in some horrible fire. <laughs> and he was like, I don't know. And then it happened. You know, like, uh, do you have any regrets about keeping the, the publishing separately? Um, because that's that's basically what did you guys in in the end, because Jane was pissed that, she wrote, that you guys were going to share the publishing, right? Well, that's one of those cases where we have different memories. I, I don't recall ever anyone ever saying we had to split it up on the third album. I, I don't recall that at all. Uh, but that, you know, I mean, I think we've all been in situations where somebody can say, you know, oh, I remember that night you were wearing a blue suit. And you go, no, no, I was wearing a red suit. No, it was, it's like, memory is a very odd thing, but I don't, re I don't remember that ever being the case or the issue on the third album, but, but it was, it was very clear that um, the people that didn't write the songs were making a lot less money and yet they were working just as hard as anybody else. So I, I saw it as definitely being a problem. I would have been happy to share it. What I don't like to share is credit. I don't want somebody's name on my song if they didn't write it. You know, I, I, I feel like it's very simple to me. If you write a song, your name goes on it. If you're in a band, everybody makes the same money. You know, you don't have to give somebody um, a songwriting credit. I think, um, you know, publishing and all that shit aside... Like, you guys were the biggest band in the world. Uh, what was that experience like in general? Because, I mean, like, how many people get to go through that? So why don't you tell us about it? Well, I don't think we were the biggest band in the world ever. Oh, but, come uh, on. Give me a break. A little bit. Come on. No? Uh, I don't think so. I, I don't think we were. I think I would have known if we were the yes, biggest band in the world. That's fair. But, uh, but uh, it was, you know, it was really, really you know, great. I mean, I, I thought it would never end. I could not imagine why anybody in their right mind would screw that up. And so I became very fixated. You know, I, I had a very, you know, I think as addicts, we become, we get certain characteristics that go along with that. And for me, it was very much thinking I could control the outcome you know, just like my using, I thought I could control the outcome. I thought I could, I thought I could, you know, keep drinking without having to quit, you know, or I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. Or I'm not going to smoke pot anymore. Cause I don't like, I don't like sitting around doing nothing, you know? And so I was, I had developed characteristics that are very in line with, with addiction and, and alcoholism and one of which is, you know, thinking you can control everything. And so I just thought I was very fixated on not 
losing what I had found, you know? It was like I felt compelled to make it fun for everybody, to be funny all the time, to make sure anybody that wasn't having fun tried to make it so they were having fun. If somebody, if Belinda didn't want to rehearse as long, it was I felt like it was my job to go to everybody and say, hey, there's no reason Belinda should have to rehearse as long as us. She should just come in and sing at the end. You know, I felt compelled and obsessed with making it work and keeping it together. Right. Making sure everybody was happy. Yeah. So that was, that was a hard job. You know, it was a hard job. And I, I just was um, obsessed with, with not losing what was, had become my identity, my security. It was, I was taking care of my mom. I was, I had financial security when I had grown up with none. I, I had my dream that to make it in the music business had come true. I'd gotten to a level that one in a million bands gets to. So I was enjoying every minute of it, but I was also very uh, concerned about keeping it. Right. No, I, I understand that. And, and just like you described, like it's a one in a million chemistry that gets you together. It's, it's the same kind of thing that ends it. And, and, and in your guys, uh, what, what do you, what do you attribute the end of it to? Was it more the publishing or was it more the fact that Charlotte had such a bad heroin thing? What, what do you look, or was it just a, like a mix? Yeah, it was, it wasn't any one thing. Uh, if I had to say one thing, I think it was just being immature, you know, uh, because I don't think we were capable of being very compassionate or communicating very well. And when things were fun, it didn't matter if you were compassionate or communicating very well because you're having fun and you don't need to do those things. But when things were harder, whether it was from somebody having a problem or, you know, feeling unappreciated or, uh, being fucked up or whatever when when things weren't something wasn't fun you need other things and so if it was one thing it was just that we were not very emotionally evolved or very grown up but but it all took its toll you know there was there was the the financial discrepancies so when you're when your singer is unhappy and you're in a band and your singer is not happy because she's making less money than anybody i mean I, I can't think of one single band that could survive that. Totally. You know, Another, I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't really say it like that in all the TV shows and whatnot, but that's basically it. If your singer's not happy and that's the way your band is set up, that you have a lead singer, then it's pretty much over because the lead singer can go be the lead singer anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And the band can't be the band without the lead singer. So, you know, there was the financial stuff was a problem. Uh, Charlotte was completely, you know, she went over, you know, she, she ended up going into rehab and I thought when she got out, we'd be okay. But also Jane left, Jane left. We didn't have the initial original chemistry. So it was not one thing. It was just a lot of things. We didn't have the same people. We had somebody come back from rehab that, was more concerned with staying sober than keeping the band together. Right. Rightfully so. Right. We had a lead singer that was sick of feeling like, Hey, I'm the lead singer and everybody else is 
got more money than me, you know, fuck these people. There's like tons of it. One of my favorite things in the end of the band that you mentioned, because you had to move over to play guitar, which you always wanted to play, uh, the bass player comes in, the new bass player comes in, and it was kind of like, well, why can't we switch uh, instruments? Why can't we have multiple lead singers? And like all of my favorite bands from back, you know, like the Beatles did that. And, and like, why, I mean, why wasn't it possible to do that? Like, why were you guys so set in that path, you think? Um, I don't know. I mean, again, it's probably just generally as you get older and more mature, you, you, you kind of open up to things. It just wasn't the way we'd set up, set it up. And it first came up when Jane wanted to sing a song on, on our last record. And we were just like, well, what's Belinda going to do? Stand there and play the tambourine. But we, we just didn't, it didn't seem like you know, or what if some, what if everybody wants to sing a song, you know, then, then what? It just didn't seem like what our recipe for success was. Totally. You know, and, and, so, I think- and it was just like, and it's still not, I mean, you know, if, if we said today, like, Hey, let's do a tour and everybody's going to sing four songs. It wouldn't be the go-go's, you know, Absolutely. I don't think we're, I don't think we were necessarily wrong, you know, for, for wanting to keep, it as it was but it's just you know as you get older and more mature you realize that sometimes you make compromises and sacrifices so that everybody is feeling you know kind of appreciated and recognized totally not to mention it worked that's probably the biggest reason that you stuck with it because it worked so well and 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 because it worked it's like let's keep it working when the band broke up how devastating was it Oh, it was terrible. I mean, I had, I had let the band define me. And as I write in my book, I had been a musician for, you know, it doesn't seem like a long time now, but at the time I was 20, 20, 21 years old and I'd been a musician for five years. So that's, you know, a quarter of my life. So I had, I had, I I had done a lot of cool shit before the Go-Go's and I'd, grown up in a great vibrant music scene and I had liked a lot of different kinds of music and you know I'd played in a band in England and so I had forgot all all everything I was prior prior to the go-go's just felt wiped out and like all I had become was a go-go my whole identity everything was wrapped up in it and I didn't understand i was they were my best friends you know even though even though sometimes we weren't getting along and stuff it it was just devastating i felt completely lost completely and how did it affect uh your alcoholism and your drug addiction like if you were a you know like a moderate user or a functional user did it change after the band broke up yeah i started i think i was um I mean, I think I, that's when I had a couple of blackouts was after that. And I think it was just really, really, um, really sad. Just, it was all coming from a very desperate, sad place. And on top of that, I'm trying to get something together again. And, but I was just really, really sad, really sad. And I really missed the band and, um, it was devastating. 
I think, I mean, for all of the stories in the book, I think my favorite story, and, and this is just because I'm an idiot, but my favorite story is where the Bengals had made it big, right? And you're mm-hmm. resentful of the Bengals. And you go to a party, and Bob Dylan is at the party. <laughs> and you go to talk to Bob Dylan, and he's like, it must make you really upset that the Bengals are so big. Like, that shit cracks me up so much that Bob Dylan identified this thing that you didn't talk about. Like, I mean, it, was it, yeah. I mean, isn't it, was it, did you laugh? Was it like, oh, Bobby, you, you can see what I'm going through? Like, how, how was that experienced? Yeah, I thought, I thought it was actually pretty cool that he, number one, even knew who we were. Yeah. And number two could like, could like zero in on the experience. And I'm sure he doesn't remember it at all. I'm sure he would not have any idea of even meeting me, but it was just kind of, you know, to me, it was just like, well, yeah. And it wasn't like I was resentful of them. I wanted females in the, in the business. I wanted to see that. I I still want that. It wasn't that I resented them. It was that I just felt like I wanted, I didn't want to be watching from the sidelines. I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted to be my band too. Totally. But it also just, it hits very close to home. You know, it's not about, that's sometimes how resentments work in general. It just hits you in a weird spot. I just love that it's Dylan, you know, that mentions it to you. Like I love Dylan so much. And uh, yeah. imagining that is it was it, I laughed out loud when I read that part of the book. <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah, it's, it's, it was it was definitely made for a memorable. I mean, I'm I'm not a starstruck person, and I respect Dylan and like Dylan, but I wasn't. I was I've I've never been very starstruck, so I wasn't like, oh my god, oh my god, it's Bob Dylan. I was just like kind of talking to him regular, and. Uh, so it, it, I liked it because it just seemed like an actual real conversation. And I think I wrote in my book, I don't, I never really crossed paths with him again, but it was kind of a cool, cool way to have it happen to meet him. Totally. Um, well, you said that he had a song that he was going to let you co-write. And then in a classic alcoholic drug addict move, you lost the tape. Yeah, it wasn't so much my tape, but my boyfriend, Clem Burke, had been jamming with him and Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. And I had heard this cassette of them jamming on this chord progression. And I, and I mentioned it to him when I met him, I said, Oh, I really like this one song. And he, he, we kind of identified which it was. And, and I said, are you going to use it? He said, no, you can use it. And so I was like, Oh, cool. I'll go. And I was like, Oh, I can put lyrics to it. He said, yeah, do whatever you want with it. So, but then I could never find the cassette. I, I mean, I, I, that shit just blows blows my mind. I, I want to write... My dream is to write an absurdist play about, like, Bob Dylan, like, staying in a family house, and he's, like, watching Family Feud with some preteen kid, and the kid doesn't know who he is. Like, I, I want to write some Waiting for Godot Bob Dylan play. One day I'm going to do awesome. it. That's my dream. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you find recovery? Like, what was the worst it got, and what made you want to get sober? Um... I think that I was just, I was, I had just kind of bottomed out on nothing working. I was really unhappy. I, I, I couldn't get anything going. You know, I, every opportunity I got didn't go anywhere. 
um, I was starting to really not like myself a lot or, you know, I'm sure I didn't before that, but wasn't aware of it. But, you know, I, I would get, I would get bombed and like cheat on my boyfriend and, you know, just it was like everything was just shit. My life just felt shitty. And one day I blacked out. I was in New York City and I'd gone to see uh, my boyfriend Clem was playing with Johnny Thunders. And I went to the gig and blacked out and don't don't remember anything from it and woke up, you know, the next day. And I just thought, I'm I'm done. I'm done. And were you? Yeah. I just thought, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I don't want to. If I, I think what I thought was nothing's working, nothing's working out. I desperately want something to change. And I think I thought, if I don't drink anymore, then something will have changed. Because nothing seemed to change. Nothing seemed to get better. Nothing seemed to improve. Nothing seemed to work out. And I, it seemed like one thing that I could do that would be different. And I just wanted something to be different, really bad. And it wasn't like I had any expectation of, of everything being great. I just wanted something to be different. And I think that's a really key thing and message to give to, to addicts and alcoholics. Like, you don't, sometimes, you know, it's just like just wanting something to be different. And because it's going to just be the same or worse. I feel with, like with drinking and using it, that's all it's ever going to be. It's going to either be the same or worse. It's never going to get be better. Right. I mean, that was my, one of the first realizations that I had when I when I finally started going to 12 step meetings this last time, which was that I'll never get higher than I've been. I'm nothing good is coming, you know. Yeah. And, and I find that I feel like that. Now, even in recovery, that I just want things to be different as often as possible, because if I get caught in a rut, um, I'm in a rut, no matter what it is, even in recovery, like change is like, you know, I, I, I call it like crop rotation in life, like whatever yeah. you can add, is, it's so beneficial, like you just started going, you just graduated from school, right? Yeah, I, well, in a, like a week or so, yeah, I'm graduating from college. Um, my daughter's going off to college. I'm a little scared because I've been a mom now for 18 years, and that's been the primary focus of my life is to be, you know, hands-on mom. So things are going to be different. And <clears throat> But, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I think I don't want to get, like, one of these old people that are afraid of change, you know, totally. What did you go to school for? Well, I went to school because, um, I started, I started taking classes. I I mean, I'd, I'd done a little bit of community college when I was like 16 after I left the, after I left the hippie school. But then in the nineties, I think when I would just get frustrated, like my band wasn't going anywhere or something like, like when you do music or I think a lot of creative things, you know, of course you do it cause you love it, but also you can put a lot of work and effort and, and get nowhere. Like nobody pays attention or nobody sees it or, you know, you definitely don't make money or anything. So school started becoming a way where I felt kind of grounded and centered where I like learning 
it makes to me learning makes me a better writer. It makes me a more interesting person, easier to talk to, more curious. I just everything about it is good for me. So I just started taking classes here and there. And sometimes I'd be too busy, you know, life. I'd have work opportunities or whatever, or get married or have a baby or whatever. Just life would happen. But over time, over a very long time, I ended up with enough um, credits that that, um, I'm like, oh, wow, I guess I can graduate. What kind of degree did you get? It's an interdisciplinary degree in English and fine arts. And mainly not because of fine, it's fine arts because they gave me, I did a bunch of portfolios to show that I knew enough about different things in music that that deserved a, that, that equaled college credit, but this school doesn't, this university doesn't have a music degree. So they said, okay, we're giving you 16 hours of credit for your music career, but we don't offer a music degree. So we're just going to wrap that into fine arts. That's cool so, though. Were the teachers yeah. amazed that they were teaching a go-go? Um, I keep a pretty, I don't really like being noticed and stuff for things. I mean, I like it when I'm on stage to be noticed as a musician. Otherwise, I don't really want to stand out. So occasionally, you know, it would come out. But for the most part, I'm just pretty anonymous in classes. Wow. I think that's awesome. And uh, I really, really appreciate your time and, uh, and your story. And uh, I'm very, very amazed that we had a go-go on Dopey. So... Thank you very, very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much, and um, thanks for having me. So that was Kathy Valentine, and again, it was a fucking thrill and a half. And uh, one thing that I didn't talk to Kathy Valentine about, well, there's a lot of things that I didn't talk to Kathy Valentine about. Two things that I didn't talk to Kathy Valentine about. One of them was that the Go-Go's hit song, Our Lips Are Sealed, which Kathy didn't write, Jane Weedlin wrote it with like my like one of my favorite uh, musicians of all time, which was Terry Hall from the Specials. So I always loved that mythology. So I just want to share that with you guys. If you guys didn't know, "Our Lips Were Sealed" was written by Jane Weedlin, getting these secret letters from Terry Hall because they all toured together uh, pre Kathy joining the band, and and they like had a little romantic thing, and Terry wrote. Uh, Jane letters that said, can you hear them or can you see them? They talk about us, all that shit, telling lies. Well, that's no surprise. So like if you're a specials fan, that's a nice little piece of trivia. But if you're a specials fan, you probably know that. So I'm sorry. In other exciting news around Kathy Valentine, it's that the Go-Go's are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And a lot of people hate the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I understand why they do. Like, it can be annoying and bullshitty. And I think I told the story on Dopey where me and Linda went to an actual Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction concert in Brooklyn. And it fucking sucked. Uh, the highlight was Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick was great. Uh, it was Cheap Trick, Steve Miller, N.W.A., I think the Blue Oyster Cult. Um, Cheap Trick was amazing. Steve Miller was not really bringing the Steve Miller that I was hoping he would bring. Although there's a funny story back in the day when Miles Davis was playing that Steve Miller was supposed to open for, or Miles was supposed to open for Steve Miller, and Miles was like, fuck that guy. I'm not opening for no Steve Miller. 
And then he showed up late so that he would make sure that he closed the show because he didn't want to open for no Steve Miller. Uh, and the worst thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame show that we went to is that NWA didn't even play. Can you believe that? The disappointment? They gave speeches and they didn't play Fuck the Police or Express Yourself or uh, Boys in the Hood or anything. Anyway, this year, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a very, very exciting lineup. Do you want to hear the lineup before I, before I move on? No one's answering, so I'm going to say yes. Tina Turner, Carol King, The Go-Go's, Jay-Z, The Foo Fighters, who I find to be very overrated, Todd Rundgren, Kraft Vick, I don't know, Charlie Patton, I think, was a country guitar player, Gil Scott Heron, who grew up in my neighborhood, LL Cool J, Billy Preston, Fifth Beatle, Randy Rhodes. I don't know. It's an exciting lineup to me. I watch the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on HBO every year. I cannot help myself. And I don't know why I have to hate on the Foo Fighters. It's just like built in to my DNA. I listened to uh, Dave Grohl this morning on the Howard Stern show on a rerun, and he was pretty entertaining. So I don't know why I I give him such shit. I'm going to read you a dopey email. You ready? Here we go. Yo, Dave. And I just want to say I love it when people write yo. I write yo to people. That's always my first text is usually yo or hey or hey, 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 or yo, yo, yo. Anyway, yo, Dave. I sent you money via Venmo for stickers, and I typed in the wrong zip code for my address. I sent you a message correcting it, but in case you didn't get my name, it is... All right. I also just listened to an episode, and it said to hit you up through Gmail, so I wanted to make sure I was doing the right thing to get some stickers. I just want some stickers to throw up around Columbus to promote the show in Ohio. I'm still catching up on episode 287. It's taken me almost three years to get this far, but you have helped me so much. Through attempt after attempt, I am happy to say that I am 60 days sober today from alcohol, the longest I've been sober in in approximately 15 years from substances. Couldn't have done it without the help of you, Chris, and I guess Ray, even though he is a pee-licking pube eater. No judgment here. Oh, God, Ray's not going to like that. This is just hitting me because of the pee-licking. I have a fucked-up story to tell about accidentally and then purposely drinking my my own piss. I know you don't do a lot of alcohol stories, but I started with a bunch of drugs in the beginning, kept switching addictions, and then just doubled, then just dumbed it down to good old-fashioned alcoholism in the final stretch. A couple of years ago, I was living with roommates. I was a closet drinker and would drink in my room upstairs at night, away from them down in the living room, assuming that they didn't know what I was doing. They totally did and only came downstairs to smoke copious amounts of my cigarettes as fast as I could until returning to my room to drink, play games on my phone in my underwear, and watch Home Improvement. My drink at the time was rum and ginger ale. I blacked out a lot and woke up to things next to my bed on a regular basis, not remembering how they got there, and it was no big deal because of the frequency of it happening. One of the things I also did as many alcoholics and drug addicts do, was piss in bottles, mostly to avoid possible interactions with my roommates while being tanked and also not wanting to leave my drink. I would usually piss in the empty two-liter bottle of ginger ale, pour it out in the toilet the following morning, and then place it and the empty bottle of rum in my gym bag to sneak out of the house undetected to dispose of later. One night, I completed my drinking session pissed sans toilet into the empty two liter, but for whatever reason, 
I forgot to empty the bottle the following morning. Fast forward to that night. I went to the liquor store to buy rum and hid it in my gym bag, per usual, until I got upstairs to repeat the process all over again. For whatever reason, that night I picked up a smaller bottle of ginger ale, thinking that would be enough to get me through the night. It, of course, was not enough. I finished it about halfway through my drinking session and didn't want to leave my room until absolutely necessary. Like the drunk I was slash am, I saw the halfway full two liter of what I thought was ginger ale and thought, fuck yes, I didn't drink it all last night and proceeded to mix my drink. Now, when I mix drinks, it was probably 75% alcohol, 25% soda, even though I didn't need it to be cut with anything. But I wanted to attempt to slow the process down a little so I could enjoy it for as long as I could before blacking out. So I mixed my drink which was in a big plastic cup like the ones you get from McDonald's with mostly rum and what was seemingly the ginger ale. I should also add that I poured the rest of the rum that I had into this cup. I brought the drink up to my lips and took a long pull. That really tastes funny, I thought to myself as I took another drink. Midway through my sip, it dawned on me. I'm fucking drinking my own piss from the previous night. I quickly pulled the drink away from my mouth and made deductive reasonings with myself. It's mostly diluted because of drinking so much liquid, and it's mostly clear, I said quietly out loud. Then coming to the realization that there would be no more booze in my belly that night because the liquor store was closed and I refused to drive drunk even to go to the gas station to get some shitty vodka that they would sell to get my fix, I looked at the cup and I had to have it. So I swallowed it down willingly in a long chug just to get over with it. I unfortunately didn't black out that night and remember the entire thing. Hope Linda and the kids are doing well, you fucking animal. Owen Allen, too. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Don't use my name. Call me Bear. There you go. Thank you, Bear, for your good alcoholic urine drinking story. We, We could use good classic alcoholism stories, so thank you. And, um, and speaking of alcoholic stories, I want to tell you guys a story of my own. It's kind of a follow-up to that story around um, the Beastie Boys and Captain Bar Mitzvah and the DJ at my meeting. And okay, if you're not some crazy fucking sicko dopey fan, I'm just going to remind you of that story where there was a guy at my meeting who I sort of felt like I should scoop up and be my sponsee and my sponsor came along and scooped him up and then I tried to be friendly with him and he told me and I I tried to tell him how much I enjoyed the Beastie Boys and he told me he didn't like the Beastie Boys and he was a DJ and I just figured he should like the Beastie Boys if he's a DJ and then that triggered this story from when I was a kid and I was bar mitzvahed and my mother hired this cheesy DJ who did this terrible shtick called Captain Bar Mitzvah and he rapped like, I'm Captain Bar Mitzvah. And I felt guilty that I talked shit about my guy at the meeting on the show. So, all right, that's, that was that story. And, um, okay, basically the story goes like this. I got into this big fight with somebody who I'm very close with, and I don't want to say who it was. Um, And I was really angry about it. And um, I went to my meeting, and I ran into Smiling Joe. I'm sure you guys remember Smiling Joe. And he asked me how I was doing, and I said I got into this big fight with this person that I'd rather not name, and I called her a cunt. 
And Joe, Joe laughed and he said, well, is she usually uh, cunty or is this just uh, is it a new thing? And I said, well, you know, she's often been cunty in my experience. And he said, just let it go. She's a cunt. So, uh, so I shared about it in the meeting and, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I attributed Joe's advice, which was just to let it go because she's a cunt. And I, and I got a big laugh and I figured I had done a good job in the meeting. And this lady approached me after the meeting. She was wearing a tank top that said the word faith in the shape of a crucifix. And I don't know why I thought she was going to come up to me to tell me how funny my share was, because she didn't. She was very, very upset. And, um, and she said, you don't say the word cunt. No women want to hear the word cunt cunt and then smiling joe went bananas and he started yelling at her and he was like listen lady you don't know what anyone else on the beach thinks about this and um and then i intervened and i and i quickly apologized to this woman because like i don't want to offend anybody at my fucking meeting you know and that's the other thing is that they've made it so you're not supposed to curse at the meeting so not only did i curse and say fuck i said cunt and and then the lady said, would you like it if one of you, if someone called one of your daughters a cunt, which I thought is the most Long Island phrase I've ever heard. Uh, and I wouldn't like that. So I am trying to refrain from cursing at the meeting. And I felt sad. And the next meeting I went to, I had this on my mind and I was sad and I didn't share and I just kind of hung out and, um, and I felt bad about that story that I told you about the DJ where I made fun of his music and, and how he reminded me of Captain Bar Mitzvah. Or he didn't remind me of Captain Bar Mitzvah, but he reminded me of it. And I felt badly about it. And after the meeting, I didn't hang out with anyone and I just walked back to my car. And I'm sitting in my car, or I'm just getting close to my car, and who do I see leaving the meeting early but the DJ? And I said, hey, man. And he goes, what's going on? And I said, nothing. What's going on with you? And he said, I'm going to work a bar mitzvah. And I was like, I was like, oh, no. I was like, I bet he heard me talk shit on the show. And I said, really? I said, I said really? You're going to work a bar mitzvah? He said, yeah. I said, oh, where are you doing it? And he said, Port Jeff. And I said, oh. And I said, well. And then I started to hint around. I wanted to sniff around and see if he had heard the show. And I said, uh. I said, do you do any particular shtick when you, uh, when you do bar mitzvahs? And he's like, what are you talking about? Because I, I wanted to see if maybe he, he heard the Captain Bar Mitzvah shtick. But he said, no, he just plays Coke and Pepsi and kind of standard DJ games. And then he drove away. And I felt so bad. And I called my sponsor. And he was like, well, I think, you know, I knew what my sponsor was going to say was that this was God, you know, that God had set it up, that the DJ came up to me while I was feeling guilty about like kind of slandering the DJ on Dopey, which I never should have done. So the point is, I shouldn't talk shit about people on the show unless they know about it. And I shouldn't call people cunts in meetings and I shouldn't call people cunts at all. And that's my lesson of the week. Don't say anything not nice about somebody that you wouldn't say to them to their face. Even though I did say it to his face. I just shouldn't have talked shit about him on the show. And that is my story. That is the dopey, cunty, 
talk shit parable of the week. If any of you have had an experience around God this week, why don't you send it to me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com? You know, uh, I'm trying to do the next right thing. I'm trying to not let my contemptuous, jealous, angry, hateful character defects interfere with the next right thing. But I struggle. I'm sure some of you guys struggle as well. I hope you enjoyed this show on the new gear. All right. But before we go, I have a brilliant idea, which is to have my father come on the show. Welcome back to the show, Dad. Hi, everybody. Hi. Now, before you get to the review... Right? You're going to read some reviews because you like to read reviews, right? That's your shtick? I'd like to hear more reviews coming in, yes. For sure, yeah. Well, you have lots of different shtick. I think my favorite shtick is when you're very critical and then you, you came in, the gun's blazing, you think things have to change. What's going on, Dad? Wait a No, it's you who says I'm critical. I am, I'm not critical. You're the one who is spreading these false rumors around. Okay, you're not critical. Um, so no. what's the criticism of the day? That you're too critical. I'm critical of you? <laughs> yes. That's your criticism? That I'm too critical? Absolutely. You're turning the tables? I'm trying to, yeah. That's, that's well, truth. what about the good things about the last few shows that you wanted to talk about? Oh, you blew it, didn't you? <laughs> Wait a minute. The emails just got off the phone. It's not emails. The email. It's a review. Oh, right. The reviews are stuck at 1,213. No, I think, I think that you've been so busy with your incredible life of gallivanting and playboying and <laughs> lake houses. And where else did you just go? Did you just go anywhere else? Uh, I changed the name of the house to Money Pit. Well, the one word in that in that name is right, which is money. Yeah, no, he also pit. went to the Van Gogh exhibition. Oh, that was super. Gallivanting around the city. That was super. He's got new fancy glasses that I'm sure were incredibly <laughs> inexpensive. <laughs> they don't even fit your face. What's wrong with those things? He's he looks like he looks like a, a handsome Benjamin Franklin with these spectacles. He made he invented them. No, this is a, a reading glasses. So you know, yeah. I, I thought you had a lot of criticism about the last few shows. Criticism, Dad, just so you know, I don't think criticism means it's bad. It's your thoughts. No, I... I Does criticism mean bad? I think it's it's positive suggestions. That's what I think it is. What, criticism? No, positive criticism. You have some positive suggestions? By the way, Dopey Nation, I'm looking at this new gear stuff. I mean, it's like incredible. I mean, those those voices that you can put in there, the clapping and applause. And okay, put this on, put this on. No, no, I, I can. I, no, you won't be able to hear it. Where are you well, pointing to the microphone and saying you're going to hear it? I you're not. I can't put it on and hold the microphone. At the same time. Here, no. Yes. Now say something funny. Um, why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> You're, you're amazed with that? That was, yeah, that's good. These earphones are incredible. They were, very, they were the cheap ones, too. Wow. They were trying to get me to buy, like, $200 earphones. Well, how much? Well, never mind. This I think is, these were, like, $70 earphones. Wow. You can almost feel the ocean. <laughs> now, don't you have any critical things? That, I don't want, you're ruining the show right now. You're talking about earphones. You, you want to hear a clapping? Me, you asked me to Don't do you this. have any thoughts? Don't, what, don't you have I, any thoughts I, about the I show? A, or are you too busy with your you Playboy? Had a terrib- you had a terrible echo in that last episode. It went, and I That's think was, why I busted I, out the gear. It's about time. I busted out the gear because last episode, that guy Skinny Vinny, who I thought was wonderful. Didn't yeah. you think he was just terrific? 
Yeah, no, I've, oh, I forget the stories. But, but he had a good soul. He had a good spirit about him. I hope, I hope his soul gets good and better. You didn't that. find there was something very likable about the guy? Yeah, okay, yes. Yes or no? Not for you. You didn't like him. He was likable for everybody, but not for you. He's very likable. I had a nice conversation with him. I told him not to buy bitcoins. It was very important. Anyway, uh, I was excited because he said he was going to handle all the production, and then the production sounded like garbage, and I was so excited about that episode, right? Yeah. I was so excited, and then there's a guy named Pete who's a crazy dopey fan, and he lives in Hawaii, and, and on Saturday mornings, I wake up to, to messages from Pete, from Dave Mascalani in Australia, right. sometimes from this guy James Glennie in England who have something to say. Pete's pretty critical. Mascalani's very kind. Pete's pretty critical. And he's like, dude, the sound fucking sucked on the last episode. And meanwhile, I thought that was a dopey tour de force. It was one little moment that it was not good, but it got you to open up the gear. So it was a positive experience. A positive experience. But that, that's what drove me to the gear, the fact that that shit went so badly. Now, you're rushing to get out of here, right? Yeah, I need to move. Do you want to read, do you want to read a review? And he's rushing not because... The, not the bad review. He's rushing, he's rushing to get out of here because his cleaning lady is coming over and he doesn't want to talk to her. No, I don't want to. Dad, be, be I, honest. I don't want to be critical. Maurice isn't going to listen to the show. Just be honest. M- Mommy would have told her what to do and do all these things. I don't say anything. I just I get out of here. <laughs> because you don't want to talk to her. I, no, I don't want to tell her what to do. I want to do her whatever she wants to do. Whatever she wants. That's <laughs> whatever okay with fine. you. Okay, here's the review. You ready? Here we go. Here yeah. we go. You ready? Just pick one. I don't care. Uh, all right. Now, when it gets to more, how am I supposed to push the button? To Just move hit more? read all one. Right, a mother's love. I ab- this is five stars. I absolutely love your podcast, Dave. I started listening just to get in a, a perspective of an addict of how and why they use. My children's father was an addict, and his drug of choice was cocaine, then crack. I myself have never tried hard drugs, just weed, and I don't really just hit it. I don't really think it's bad. When my youngest son was two months old, I kicked my ex out. I refused to raise my kids around drugs. Well, years later, my smart, beautiful daughter, who was her dance team captain in college, met a boy and joined him in taking Roxy, then snorting heroin. Uh, Where am I? Thankfully, her dad had been clean for 20 years now, and it was more understanding than me. And she admitted to him she needed help. So... So they flew her to Florida for treatment. She has almost four years clean, married a police officer, and has a six-month-old son. I have listened to Dopey through, it, through all of it. Your podcast has made me laugh, cry, and understand addiction. Thank you for that. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. Thanks. That's a nice read, Dad. Yeah. I, I have a couple questions oh, for you. That was, what that do you was think about positive. the review? What do you think about the review? Oh, it's wonderful. What do you mean? I mean, listen, I, I, I was listening to I, maybe the Skinny Vinny one, and uh, at one point, you know, again, I got emotional because of reading a good review. of uh, Somebody was, was in the Dopey Nation that sent in a review that was very sweet, made me feel good. See, I think this is another example of you not knowing the difference between a review and I an email. I don't know. The, what's the okay, difference? Okay, a, a, a review. What the heck? A review is when someone goes to iTunes 
and yeah, leaves a review. Uh-huh. An email is when they write me. I got a it. comment on Facebook is when they comment on something on Facebook. All right, the rev- there aren't enough reviews on iTunes. It's been stuck at twelve thirteen for about two weeks. I think it's at twelve twenty six. I thought it was twelve. Well, all right, it's stuck on twenty one thirty six. Ah, you must be getting something different. I didn't see did you that. read A Mother's Love before? I did, yes. Oh, well, I think that you just got the number in your head is 16 and not 36. Right. So listen, make my father happy. Maybe he'll read your review if you're lucky. I have a question, Dad. Uh, legal weed is on its way. It's here. Like they passed legal, In New York State? They passed legal weed this year. You don't know that? No, I, I, thought I, you did, read the I did know that. I was trying to get it out of my head. Yes. Right. So... And you, and my father, this is very interesting, hangs out with a lot of potheads and stoners and no, stuff. I don't. A few, a few here and there. No. I want to ask you a question, because obviously once in a while you'll have, a, you'll have a glass of wine, maybe you'll have some beer with spaghetti, maybe you'll have a cocktail if you go to some fancy joint. Probably. Somebody Somebody might convince you to get some artisanal drink or something. Now, when legal weed comes down the pike... And all of your you rich, want it, you want the answer. Now? All of your rich hippie friends are eating gummy bears and, and marijuana brownies, and they say, "Alan, just have a quarter; it'll be fun." Do you think you're gonna? Have you eaten one yet, Dad? Dopey Nation, you know what my answer is gonna be. Uh, no. Well, I'm, why I'm is alcohol any, okay? It's well, I'm saying it's okay for me. So why isn't an edible okay for you? Because I have bad memories of someone in my family who was using that, and it made it, made it worse for that same person. And Dopey Nation, I'm looking at it. It was me? It was me? <laughs> I thought it was somebody else. Now, before we go, do you want to hear something incredible? Yes. Okay, here we go. Do you remember the psychic lady on uh, oh. Patreon, Steph? I believe her name was the one who had who talked to Chris. Yes, who had a dream about Chris yes. and who was connected to Chris. Absolutely, she. I, it I turns out her. she's actually a professional musician. Oh, and she sent in a song that she called as her response to "Good So Bad." Nice. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to end the show, I, and unfortunately, we're not going to get to hear you say how wonderful the song is. So why don't you say it now? Pretend uh, like you've heard it. I, it <laughs> It's one, it was a wonderful song that I haven't heard yet. It it's was a wonderful terrific. Song. It's yeah, wonderful. it's great. Yes, and she's a wonderful musician. And do you want to you want to end the show for us? Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. Have you heard anything on the show thing that you want to talk about? Any things you've read or anything? No, I I, I didn't listen to this the show that you're trying to put out tonight. I didn't know. Let me ask you this: yes. Will you ever read the bad review again, or do I have to dupe you into reading it? You cannot do. I, I can. I can dupe you at the drop of a hat. No. I can say, "Read this," and you'll be you'll be two sentences in before you no, realize. I'm, I'm dupe proof. You're never gonna do that again. Never. All right. So I'm gonna play Steph's response to "Good So Bad," and then "Good So Bad" because Chris was obsessive compulsive about it. And uh, until then, thank you, Dad, for coming on the show and reading a review. You're quite welcome. Did you buy the stand-up paddleboard for Nora yet? I forgot all about that. What a terrible <laughs> grandfather. You're going to get spend any of your big money on a stand-up paddleboard for her? Uh, yes, of course I will. Yes, of course. Very good. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. And here's Steph. Hit us with the dopey. Let's hit him with some dopey. I want to be good so I want to be good so bad But bad, but bad, but bad Desires All I ever had All I ever had 
all I ever had I want to take a walk around the world Starting in my own neighborhood I like that I want to fly a plane up in the sky Feel all these feelings, what it means to be alive, yeah I want to be good I want to be good I'm good, yeah, I'm good But bad, but bad, but bad Desires All I ever had <laughs> so All I ever had <laughs> All I ever had I'll take this road before me And peace and love come find me The sun that brightly guides me Leaving all these troubles far, far behind me yeah. I want to be good so bad I want to be good so bad But bad, but bad, but bad Desires All I ever had All I ever had All I ever had Okay, that's our show. We take, we have a nice laugh. You and me hang out. People listen. It's fun. Goodbye. Hello. Blah blah blah. Welcome to Dopey. That's it. Toodles. I wanna take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good? Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad so bad, so bad I want to be good So bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers Make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad 
That's all I ever had. That's all I ever had.